Friday Drive with Mark Dolan on Talk Radio. Now, with figures for domestic abuse seeing a worrying spike during lockdown, we're delighted to launch the second instalment in a brand new and very well-received series here on Drive called Undiscussable, fronted by my fabulous colleague broadcaster Charlie Webster, based on her critically acclaimed podcast of the same name. Charlie is someone who has spoken honestly about her own experience, and I'm delighted to welcome Charlie back to the show. How are you? Thanks, Mark. I'm glad to be back because you're about the second person I've seen all week. Well, listen, um, apart from through a screen, you're our good luck charm, by the way, because it's it's been a week since we saw you. Um, The coronavirus alert level has dropped from four to three. Uh, According to the government, all the schools are going to be open in September. You've brought nothing but good news today. Thanks. I, I don't think I can really take that one. But, no, but we're, we're never you know. going to not let you on the show as long as this keeps working. OK, please. OK, <laughs> keep, keep letting me on the show. Yeah. Um, th- thanks for the fab- fabulous introduction. I think, you know, last week we spoke about lockdown, really, and the effects it was having. And I think it was very important to get across that it wasn't lockdown that was causing um, a rise in domestic abuse. It's the fact that there were patterns of behaviour that already pre-existed. And it was the fact that victims found it harder to leave and there was more opportunity for an abuser to control the victim and you were talking to me about that off air about you know is this more about I don't know almost giving an abuser an extra weapon but one thing I really wanted to discuss today was more about how the authorities see domestic abuse Um, you know over in England coercive control law was introduced in 2015 but only 10 out of the 43 police forces have been trained on it um, and training on domestic abuse is so important to understand that it's the behaviours, but it's not mandatory over here in England. Um, so Save Lives Charity, they do have training, which is called DA Matters, but police forces don't seem to prioritise it because it means a day out yeah. and extra money and it's not compulsory. Um, so I thought it'd be very interesting if we go and speak to some uh, somewhere where it is making a difference. And it is a priority. In Northern Ireland, Superintendent Clive Beatty has been and is working closely with Michelle Alonso, who's the training coordinator with Fermina Women's Aid. Welcome. Good evening to you both. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Clive. Hi, Michelle. Now, let me correct you for a second, because with a father from County Cavan, I will tell you it's pronounced Fermina. Is it not, Michelle? It is, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Fermina. (laughs) Well, should we let them away with that, Superintendent Clive Beatty? Absolutely. That's not within my jurisdiction. Uh, So, Fermina. For manner. For manner. Yeah. Apologies, oh, Michelle and Clive. Right. <laughs> well, well, after the lockdown, Dearie we'll take me. you over there. I need you'll a see, lesson. You, you'll see what a beautiful part of the world is. You know, the is. worst thing is I looked it up as well. Don't you worry. <laughs> you'll be forgiven. <laughs> right, Clive. Why Why are you prioritising this as a superintendent? Why is domestic abuse a priority to you? I don't think the rank of superintendent actually um, has inspired me to do this. This is just something that I wanted to do personally, but obviously my my position within my current district has allowed me to explore much further the impact that enhanced training can bring to the officer when dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Michelle, what kind of training have you been running? And, and what I'd love to know is how are you incorporating recognising behaviours and coercive control? Well, we've actually been uh, running this training with the PSNI since um, 2018, um, following on from a meeting with myself and um, Superintendent Beatty. It was really from, I was facilitating groups in women's aid and from talking to the women um, on obviously a very regular basis, it became very apparent 
and that there was a lack of understanding around the reality of domestic violence and you know seeing past i suppose the physicality of it so um and what i really find from that was that the lack of understanding and and the lack of awareness and the, and that the prevalence of myths really was actually culminating in women stopping coming forward and seeking outside assistance so through that, I actually designed this training then to look, I suppose, beyond the physicality and looking more at the reality of domestic violence, um, understanding the narrative um, and not the event, you know, seeing past isolated events and, and yeah. really for key people like the PSNA, and we've branched this out, you know, further afield as well, but it was really about understanding um, somebody who's been going through this, their response, because the officers were very open at the, at the outset of the training about frustrations that they would have, um, and you know things like and like society would have. Why do why do women not leave relationships? Why do they stay? Why are they withdrawing statements, etc.? So, this training was very much about understanding her response and how she is responding to cumulative patterns of abuse and not isolated incidents. And this training was very much about bringing them on her journey. It was designed for the officers to understand the cumulative pattern of abuse and really tailored in a way that they would be very much submerged into the experience of anybody who's been going through. Clive, um, Michelle, that, that was so fantastic because in the research that I've done and in my original podcast, one of the things I found was um, there was a problem with police response because the first responders tended to be the least experienced. They were ones that the staff had the highest turnover. Clive, do you think there could be a specialist expert that joins first responders? And I'd love to know what impact has the training had on domestic abuse and how officers are dealing with it? Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that we need all the help that we can get to deal with this, you know, affliction on society. The impact of the training that we have seen is the officers have much better understanding of the impacts of domestic abuse because, as Michelle said... I think police were quite good with dealing with the physical assault. They could see the blood, they could see the bruises and the scars, but actually looking into the eyes and searching into the soul of a victim who have suffered for 30 years or more, police officers were not trained to cope with that internal trauma. And often by saying the wrong thing to that victim could actually deter that victim from now going on their journey to freedom. So the the training was so important for us to upskill the officers, to allow them to employ empathy with much more authority and actually see into the soul and help that victim on their journey. How difficult, Clive, do you think the law makes it in terms of prosecuting domestic abuse? Because it tends to be seen as an incident which is michelle mentioned however it's patterns of behavior over time and it's then almost like shoehorned into assault or or gbh or harassment yeah especially over here in northern ireland where we we don't actually have coercive control legislation yet so this is another reason why we sought to upskill the officers to give them as many tools as possible and maybe we may not be able to get a criminal justice outcome for the survivor of domestic abuse but at least we could signpost them to the, the support that they really needed. And a criminal justice outcome may, then may become a sort of a parallel line that, that we could follow. So you're right about laws over here. It, it, it's classed as an assault with a domestic motivation. So officers were having to really use their craft to try and bring the offender to justice in any way they could when they didn't have the most effective laws available to them. 
there's so much I really want to go in with both of you. Um, Michelle, very, very quickly, I do want to ask you one last question and then we'll have to go. How do you make a cultural shift? Because Clive mentioned there about trying to really squeeze domestic abuse in there in the in, in the law in a sense, but then it doesn't do a preventative measure in the fact that that per, um, you know, perpetrator is still there and then goes and find another victim. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the key to all this is awareness and, and, and people understand the reality of this. You know, especially now with the course of control, thankfully, but, you know, the legislation is coming in now into Northern Ireland and people need to realise it's not coming in because course of control is unpleasant, it's coming in because it's dangerous. And, you know, course of control in particular, it very much closely resembles what women are experiencing. And this is exactly what we did with the PSNI social workers, and we've done it with hairdressers and beauticians and salon professionals, to understand the subtlety of abuse. It's not just extreme and physical, it's subtle, it's mind games, it's manipulation. The more people know about this, the more people get talking about this, I think this is key to the fight back and trying to eradicate this as much as we can. Yeah, exactly. And thank you so much for joining us. Very much appreciate both of your time. That's Superintendent Clive Beatty and Michelle Alonso from Mark. Well, for Manor, of Thanks. course. For and Manor. After lockdown, you and I are going to do a bit of a road trip and we'll visit that beautiful part of Ireland and you will be I'd blown away. And you will never get the name wrong again. But no, listen, I that was will, extraordinary <laughs> stuff. And thank you so much for hooking us up with Clive Beatty and Michelle Alonso. True. Uh, true, true heroes in this uh, battle against an, an awful, an awful thing. Charlie, where are we going next? So we often talk about domestic abuse in the context of why doesn't the person just leave or think that once the person's left, it's fine. But what about when there's a child involved? The child still sees their abusive parent because that's what the current family court system does, no matter the harm of the child. And Saves Lives charity found that 62% of domestic abusers harm their children directly through child arrangements and what about the victim who's managed to escape? Now, you're about to hear a current situation that might sound the extreme end of it, but it highlights, even with overwhelming evidence, the struggles that the system has in prioritising child protection. This is Thomas. He's a victim of domestic abuse that left his partner after she was ordered by police to stay away from him and his son. That was six years ago, and he's been fighting to protect his son ever since. <laughs> It's effectively harassment by proxy. So she knows I will have to respond. She knows people will come around to visit and investigate. She knows it will cause me uh, financial cost going into court with barristers. She knows it will be stressful for me to put statements together. It's a way for her to enact some kind of vengeance and continue in a way that a different form of abuse. You know, when we were together, it was a very coercive and controlling type of abusive relationship where she would effectively try and manipulate me to do things, pay her credit card or things like that with various threats. Now the abuse has just changed a bit. Instead of direct, it's indirect and she'll use anyone and everyone she can to indirectly harass me or cause me cost or time or stress. Thomas was catfished by his ex who used a fake online identity when they met Things moved very quickly. They got married, she moved in with him. As well as the controlling abuse, things started to not make sense about her. He then found out she wasn't at all who she said she was. Her name wasn't her name, her date of birth wasn't hers, and she wasn't from the country she said she was. He confronted her. She became even more abusive and aggressive and made threats to get him arrested and removed from his house if he left her. This went on for a while, until she did call the police after she'd scratched herself and told Thomas 
She was going to say it was him. But it didn't work. Thomas had collected evidence of her abuse, plus the police took DNA tests of both of their fingernails. She was arrested and released on bail with conditions not to come back to the house. This is when Thomas separated from her. The only thing was, they had a young son together. Thomas was given custody, for the first year at least. My ex was under a non-molestation order and a supervision order as well to protect uh, my son and protect me from her harassment and things. It didn't really stop the abuse. She went to get very expensive solicitors and so the, the battle then turned into a battle in the family courts and we've, yeah, we've been through 55 hearings since that incident when uh, she was removed from the house. Now they have shared custody but she does everything she can to try and still control him and repeatedly breaks the arrangement order. She also tries to alienate her now 10-year-old son from his father. My ex claimed to have had the coronavirus and then used that as, a, as an excuse not to hand over our son according to the, the standard schedule we have. That's fairly um, normal. In, in a sense, the coronavirus was just a, a nice excuse for her to be able to use to prevent contact for... Uh, the Easter holidays. She's done exactly the same thing before, every single year actually, for Easter and Christmas are her favourite times where she prevents contacts. So holidays are a particular problem as to how to deal with and plan for. And, and I've ended up going to court about six or seven times in court the day before a holiday with a judge telling her to hand over the passport, things like that. That's, that's happened about six or seven times. She manipulates their son and coaches him with a script to say things and then buys him expensive treats like, say, a new Xbox as a reward. She also recently planned and coerced her son into running away from home during the times when he was at his dad's. Now, you know, my son is, is 10 years old. So for him to just walk away from the home, travel a mile across from our village to the next village, who knows what would happen? I mean, <laughs> an accident, kidnap, I mean, who knows? So not only is it recklessly irresponsible, but it, it just shows how manipulative my ex is in terms of brainwashing and coaching my son to run away from his dad just to get to her house. And then, because I know how things pan out in court, I know that evidence of him running away would then be used against me. And, and how, how can I uh, defend against that? I actually now record everything and have been recording everything for a long time. So I have the evidence of her telling my son what to do. And so if it goes to court and it becomes an issue of him running away, then at least I can say, well, the reason why he ran away was because his mum coached him to do that, trained him, manipulated him to do that. And it's not because he's not happy at home. There's a covert hidden reason and it's abusive. How can any parent try and encourage their child to run away from the other parent? That's, that's manipulating a child. It's turning a child against one parent. And this is fundamentally what alienation is. You know, one parent using the child as a weapon in their battle against another parent. Mm -hmm. and, and the child becomes an expendable piece of ammunition in the war. I asked Thomas what it's like in the family court and the impact it's had on him over the last six years. One of the problems with the way the court works is that they only deal with the incident in that moment. For example, Thomas's ex-wife not giving him his son's passport. They don't look at the patterns or underlying behaviour or how many times this has been in court. In a sense, I've become numb 
because it's gone on for so long. We've had six years of family court hearings. It's very worrying before a hearing comes up. You know, you worry whether you've prepared everything for the judge. You worry whether the judges received the documents. I would say 50% of the time I walk into court, the judge has not actually seen or read the documents that I've provided. And so I have to then somehow explain in the space of about two or three minutes what has taken maybe a month to prepare for. And a lot of judges don't really listen. They, they formulate a bit of a view. And quite often the view of the judges is, well, both parents are just arguing. They don't really look at the detail or the evidence. They narrow down the issue so much that the, the courts don't really it's not fit for purpose in terms of understanding the underlying problem and dealing with the underlying problem. They just massage the symptoms as such and make the problem go away for another day for another judge in another court. They haven't want to delve into a lot of the background where my ex was abusive to me or where she was abusive to my son. And they don't really take on board a lot of the deep-rooted issues. As somebody who suffered abuse as a child, all I could think about was the impact this was having on his son. Not just short term, but long term too. I told Thomas this, and he explained that this is his concern, and even more so because of what he found out happened to his ex-wife's son from a previous marriage. You know, it's supposed to be about the risk of the child, and they're not analysing the risk of your son. But then also, it's like, what? Is it teaching him about what a healthy relationship is and how to behave towards people? If he understands that all he has to do is tell a lie to get something, well, that's that's the fast track to becoming a criminal. And, I mean, unfortunately, in our case, I know exactly what will happen because my ex actually had a son from a former marriage and and he ended up exactly going down that path where he ended up in prison four times. He's now on the UK's most wanted list. I can see it now, I can see it happening with my son, and I'm trying to protect him from that. But if you say things to social workers about, you know, well, I don't want my son to become like his stepbrother, who is a criminal and a fugitive, they don't connect the dots and they don't say, oh, okay, well, why did that happen? They say, well, as long as he's not in communication, direct communication, or if, if the stepson is not living in the same house, then there's no risk. Well. Uh, you're not seeing the risk from the mother, you're seeing the risk from the stepson who's the fugitive. Yes, I can understand that. But the bigger risk is how the influence of the mother on my son is then going to take him down the same path. That's my concern, is, is my son's long-term harm to him. And Jan James, the chief executive of Good Egg Safety, currently running a campaign and study on parental alienation, joins us. Good evening, Jan. Hi, Charlie. Jan, I know there's so much to get into and we only have around five minutes. Can you explain, <laughs> I know, can you explain to us what parental explanation, uh, parental alienation is and the signs? Well, um, there's no definite set out in law, but parental alienation is recognised by CAFCAS, 
which obviously has had a lot of dealings with Kafkast listening to your um, interview there, where a child's existence or hostility towards one parent isn't justified and is a result of psychological manipulation, which you've obviously heard a great deal of in the last um, 10, 15 minutes. Um, I prefer Dr. Childress, who's a leading uh, clinical psychologist definition, actually, because what it really is, is a severe form of emotional and um, psychological family violence um, that effectively doesn't just abuse the parent, um, but it does massive psychological damage to the child. Um, so it is unequivocally a child protection issue. And from all the studies and research you've done so far, um, does the current system and professionals have the structure and, uh, and knowledge to see this. I mean, the reason why I'm smiling is because we just heard what yeah. Thomas has gone through 55 yeah. times he's been through the yeah, family yeah. courts. And that's, you know, I'd love to say that was really unique, but it actually isn't. The scale of this is eye-watering. It is the biggest scandal I have ever worked on. Um, and there was a mention before about not joining the dots. That is the issue. Nobody is joining the dots. Nobody is joining the dots between the rising crime, the Jackie Sabai, the National League for Serious Crime Raised, the one in eight children who've got mental health disorders, one in eight, according to the Commissioner's report. Um, they are not looking at the huge cost to society, not only the individuals, where parents are basically have their own children abducted from them in plain sight. And then you go to the woeful inadequacy of the family courts, as we've just heard there, who haven't even read the papers that he spent so long preparing, and there's no judicial continuity, so they're not looking at the patterns. And all abuse is a pattern mm. in any kind of domestic abuse, and they're not looking at that. Jan, you summed it up brilliantly. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us and wrapping it up so quickly. That was Jan James, the Chief Executive of Good Egg Safety. We're talking there about parental alienation in the family courts. If there's anything you've related to in the show today, there is help for men and women, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, Women's Aid and Mankind. And Undiscussable is supported by the Audio Content Fund. Uh, my sincere thanks to Charlie Webster and our brilliant guests in Undiscussable. We're back at 6.30 next week. Looking forward to it already. I also want to thank our team, Lewis, Amy and Chris, for a fabulous show today. Your calls, texts and tweets, most importantly. Howard Hughes is next. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio.